Hey there, welcome to LiveWire. I'm Luke Burbank. This week on the show, we're going to be talking to comedian W. Kamau Bell and executive producer Katie King about their documentary miniseries, We Need to Talk About Cosby, which takes a look at Bill Cosby's comedic rise and also his fall from grace. How did he go from America's dad to an alleged sexual predator? And also, what did he mean uniquely to black America? Then we're going to hear a bit of fashion advice from our very dapper friend, Paul F. Tompkins. I know that a lot of us could use some advice after nearly two years at home, just kind of doing whatever. In fact, our Livewire social media folks tweeted out a pic of me the other week in running shorts. Then we're going to hear from five-time Grammy winner Keb Moe about his new album. You don't want to miss a minute of this episode of Livewire, so stick around. It all gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. How you doing? I am doing great this week. Yeah. Feeling really good. And feeling excited because it's time to play another round of station location identification examination. Woo. You ready? Yes. Okay. So I'm going to give you some info about a place where they play live wire and you try to guess where I'm talking about. This location's local high school mascot is the Millionaires because purportedly this town once had more millionaires per capita than anywhere else in the world. Hmm. I would not have connected those dots, so don't feel bad. Here's a follow-up. It's also the birthplace of Little League Baseball. Oh, okay. So I was going to say it was like a Silicon Valley thing, but no, not if it's the birthplace of Little League. That's got to be somewhere, I think, Greenwich, Connecticut. You are not super far off. When you say that, I know I'm at least two states away. (laughs) (laughs) Let's see. Does Connecticut touch Pennsylvania? It's a town in Pennsylvania where they actually, to this day have the Little League World Series, which is so much fun. In August, you got these young players getting to be on television and do their best impression of the major leaguers. It is Williams... Williams-Sonoma, Pennsylvania. Close. Williamsport, Pennsylvania, (laughs) where Livewire is on WVYA. So shout out to everybody there in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, listening to the show. Speaking of the show, should we get to it? Let's do it. All right, take it away. 
from PRX, it's LiveWire. This week, filmmakers W. Kamau Bell and Katie King. We have to, as a culture, stop assuming that because somebody makes good work that they are a good person. And comedian Paul F. Tompkins. I had to go to the supermarket to get coffee. I went in my pajamas, and it felt powerful. (laughs) (laughs) With music from Kebmo. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now, the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank! Hey, thank you so much. Thank you, Elena, jamming out. That was my Kebmo guitar. Yeah, I like it. I could tell. Hey. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We got a great show in store for you this week. Of course, we asked the Livewire listeners a question. We asked, what's your biggest fashion regret? Mm. We are going to be getting some fashion tips later on from the always debonair Paul F. Tompkins. And we're going to read those listener responses coming up in just a few moments. First, though, of course, it's time for the best news we heard all week. This is our little reminder at the top of the show that there is good news happening out there in the world. Elena, what is the best news you heard all week? I have a quiz question for you before I start. If I was going to tell you which public figure probably spreads the most good news, who would you think I was talking about? Public figure. Are we talking um, political, pop culture? Like if I was going to say, hey, guess who did something amazing again? (laughs) Knowing you, my guess would be Dolly Parton. That's right. You got it right. (laughs) I think last week we were talking about the little kid who loved the Netflix show and said that you needed to be like Dolly on a dinosaur, the most powerful thing. I've been thinking about that (laughs) ever since (laughs) last week's Live Wire. I've been thinking about my donuts. I've been thinking about Dolly on a dinosaur. We have more Dolly, Dolly Dolly-related best news. Yeah, because Dolly Parton uh, and her company has recently announced that if you are an employee at Dollywood in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, which is not far Mm -hmm. away from where she was born, or any of the affiliated theme parks with the Dollywood Industries, you can go to college and Dolly Parton will pay for it. What? Yep. This is called the Grow You Program. Employees, there are 11,000 employees affiliated with Dollywood and other parks. They will have 100% of their tuition fees and their books covered, as well as additional expenses and they're partnering with about 30 different learning institutions to offer degrees in things like marketing or technology. And even if you don't want to major in those kinds of things, if you want to major in art or design or hospitality, those educations will also be supplemented for Dolly's employees. That's incredible. I, I am guessing that Dolly Parton probably didn't have a chance to go to college. Yeah, that's right. Kind of growing up how she did. Mm-hmm. And um, she was probably like singing in bars when she was five or something, you know. Like, <laughs> I feel like Dolly was out there working from a young age. And I know, you know, my parents didn't go to college. It can be a real barrier mm-hmm. if you're the first generation of your family to get to go to college. And cost is a huge part of that. So the idea that there would be an opportunity. That's inc- I mean, what an incredible gift for her to give these folks. And I love the idea, too, that it makes for better employees, for employees to know that if they want to pursue their education and uh, grow or learn new skills, they're going to bring that energy back to whatever role that they're playing. And this is full-time employees, part-time employees, regional employees, you name it. The other thing that I love is, you know, for a long time, Dolly has, ru- has sponsored the Imagination Library, where if you're a young child, she'll ma- mail you 
several books a year, uh, no questions asked, for like the first five years of your life because it's proven that if there's books in the home, children develop a relationship with books and reading that allows them to succeed more in things like school and work. So she's now... Uh, being generous and helping empower people at the early stages of their education all the way to the end. An angel who walks among us. My best news story that I saw is actually something that's going on over in Britain where the British Zoo, the Trentham Monkey Forest in (laughs) Stafford, England. Why is that funny? I don't know. It just, there's something incongruous about it. A monkey forest. The Trentham Monkey Forest. But... They've got a bunch of Barbary macaque monkeys, although they don't have enough of them because the Barbary macaque is endangered. Mm-hmm. And so I guess it's uh, it's the sort of um, season where these monkeys are mating or they should be mating, and they weren't. And so they went out and got a Marvin Gaye impersonator. What? <laughs> To come sing to the monkeys to try to get them in the mood. and <laughs> They didn't play Marvin Gaye songs. They found nope. somebody to come sing them live. They found a guy named David Largy, who is, I, I'm going to assume, this part of England's leading Marvin Gaye impersonator. <laughs> Elena, I'm holding a picture up to the Zoom camera oh, so you no. can see. Just- he is standing in the field. He is singing to the monkeys. I'm going to describe for the Livewire listeners the look on the monkey's face. It's non-erotic. No. The monkeys look totally so, unimpressed They're by totally the entire far thing. apart from each other and looking in opposite directions while a man in a white suit sings behind them. The monkeys look like they're on a date that they both know is going nowhere. <laughs> they're waiting for their cell phones to ring so yes. their emergency phone call will give them yes. a thing. That they're, oh, I have to go. They're it's texting their friends, bail me out of this right now. (laughs) The best that the zoo can say about the possible efficacy of this is that apparently some of the monkeys engaged in grooming and teeth chattering, which is considered foreplay. So they're saying (laughs) it's possible that it worked. They can't tell who mated with whom because uh, apparently the monkeys mate with each other a lot during this period of time. So establishing paternity is kind of difficult, mm. but they did see that some of the monkeys were chattering their teeth in a slightly horned up way. <laughs> so they're thinking they're thinking maybe the Marvin Gaye thing worked. Man, that is when you know you are out of ideas. You can just, I just imagine these zookeepers like, I don't know, anybody got any Marvin Gaye? <laughs> they're like, well, let's make a special. Let's do it yeah. live. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, the fact that they're trying to make it special for the monkeys uh, to bring back the population. I like that. I'm going to call that the best news that we've heard all week. Hey, if you can't get enough of the best news in your life, well, we have a whole podcast now called The Best News You can get it wherever you get your podcast. So please do check it out. We put it out every Wednesday. All right, let's welcome our first guest on over here to Livewire. You may know W. Kamau Bell as a stand-up comedian or the host of the Emmy Award-winning CNN docuseries United Shades of America. His latest project is the Showtime docuseries We Need to Talk About Cosby, which he hosts and directed. Katie King, executive, produced this series, which premiered at the 2022 Sundance Film Festival The New York Times calls it a model of how to engage honestly with disgraced artists and their art. And just a heads up for those of you listening, this conversation does include conversations about sexual assault. 
W. Kamau Bell and Katie King. Welcome to Livewire. Thanks for having us. This is a, uh, a really, really compelling uh, project and uh, one that, you know, seemed to be very necessary. I'm curious, though, Kamau, from your perspective, why did you decide to tackle this particular topic? Why did you think this film needed to be made? Of all the things you could have been making a film about. I mean, I think, you know, I've been asked that question a lot. I think this, (laughs) this film sort of was tackling me before I ever knew it was something I could do. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think as I, as I state in the series, I'm a black man born in the, in the early seventies, grew up under the, like, as Bill Cosby's career was starting to really rise through Fat Albert and Picture Pages and the Electric Company. And, and he was already on, on every commercial pitching Mm -hmm. things. And then. You know, Bill Cosby himself, even as a young kid who wanted to do stand-up comedy, I was like, oh, that's really real stand-up comedy. And then I was part of that Cosby show generation where, like, I saw myself in that family. And then that was my number one show. And I tuned in week after week and felt like I was a Huxtable, you know. So then to find out what we found out about all the accusations and believing the survivors, it's just I was having this conversation for years before it ever looked like anything that could be a project. And even when it was initially, quote-unquote, pitched, it was a conversation between me and Andrew Freed and Jordy Wynn from Boardwalk Pictures that was just started out just about comedy documentaries in general. Mm. But then how would you handle a comedy documentary about a fallen comedian? And when you say that, you quickly get to Bill Cosby. Katie, I'm wondering what uh, the conversations were like for you and some of the other uh, women that worked on the film, considering that those are the victims. Uh, you know, Kamau's bringing his perspective as a black man but you have a perspective as a, a person who is the same uh, gender as those who were victimized by Bill Cosby. Definitely. We had a lot of conversations about how to handle the sexual assault survivors um, and how to do it in a sensitive way, how to support them, how to, you know, them sharing their stories is such a hard thing to do. Even now, now that the film has come out, it feels for us, we're like, okay, it's, you know, we've done it. The hard work is over, but for them, a lot of it's just kind of beginning because now, you know, this is the biggest audience I think that their story has had. So maintaining those relationships and making sure that they feel comfortable, making sure that they're heard. Uh, we tried to give them as much airtime as possible to keep in some of the details and some of the nuances so that it wasn't just like, okay, give us the eight second version of this worst moment of your life. And then we'll never hear from you again. You know, like we really wanted to tell their story, but also let you get to know them as a full person. Um, I I think for a lot of white folks like myself, it is really hard to fully comprehend uh, the impact of Bill Cosby doing something like picture pages on Captain Kangaroo or Fat Albert. There's a a person interviewed in the documentary who basically says, this was the first black teacher I'd ever had. Can you kind of speak to that, Kamau? Yeah, that's uh, Mark Lamont Hill, who's (laughs) is amazing throughout the series. Uh, yeah, that like, as a, I think there's this thing, like I see with my kids, like there are things that my kids take for granted that I didn't have when I was a kid, specifically around representation. And like, there's so many books and cartoons now, not so many, but there are books and cartoons that center black girls in ways that like didn't exist when I was a kid. So for me, I'm born into a world where Bill Cosby's already on television. Mm-hmm. And the way that he was sort of framed was as like, this is not only a good comedian, this is a good person. And I think when we talk about picture pages and Fat Albert, the way he talks directly to camera, he wants me to learn. He cares about me. And you sort of, and 
even though there's a lot made about Bill Cosby sort of being, we talk about the idea of he was called raceless, he feels like a black person. He does not feel like some, a black man who's sort of like trying to cross over. He feels he is representing as a black person. So it's like, this is a black man who cares about me. And it's not until later when I was watching it, I realized how important that was because kids before my generation didn't have that, you know? So it, and then you get to the Cosby show. And as we talk about in the series, there's ways in which white people watch the Cosby show. And we, and we all talked about it. And Katie talked about it, where you go, I think I like this family. They're funny. I, I, I relate to this character the most and it's good and it's funny and I like it. And then black kids are watching or black people watching going, Ooh, Claire's reading Ebony magazine. Mm. Ooh, that's black art on the wall. Oh, his mm. T-shirt is from a black, an HBCU. Oh, that's Sammy Davis Jr. on here. Oh, that's Betty Carter. Like that's Betty Carter. Like we're seeing them go. Like we are here to celebrate black excellence and also make us a, a good show. So that stuff is like why it becomes hard to talk about later when you find out what you find out. This is Live Wire from PRX. We are talking to filmmakers W. Kamau Bell and Katie King about their new docu-series, We Need to Talk About Cosby. Uh, we've got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere. More with Kamau and Katie when we come back. Vacations, weddings, birthdays, and reunions. Oh my, there's so much going on. Get the most out of your spring plans by stocking up on pre-alcohol now. Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make Zbiotics your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com slash livewire to get 15% off your first order when you use livewire at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com slash livewire and use the code livewire at checkout for 15% off. Thank you to Zbiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times. Welcome back to Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We are talking to filmmakers Katie King and W. Kamau Bell about their new docuseries, We Need to Talk About Cosby. And just a heads up for those of you listening, this conversation does include conversations about sexual assault. Uh... Something this series brings up, which I think actually applies to a lot of artists these days, regardless of their their race, is this idea of what you lose as the fan of the artist when you realize that they have done awful things. Um, and I think that this uh, this film really grapples with it in an interesting way. But I mean, where did you end up with that, Kamal? Uh, as far as like, how, what do we do, and particularly, what do you do as a Black American w- with what you lose when you reckon with what Bill Cosby really is alleged to have done? I mean, I think what you lose is your uh, naivete. Mm-hmm. I think. I mean, I think on some level, it's like we have to, as a culture, stop assuming that because somebody makes good work, that they are a good person. I think really this is all remnants of the studio system when like an, uh, you know, an actor would be discovered in Hollywood and they first thing they do is change his name. They'd lie about his age. They would dye his hair and they would say, these are the clothes you wear and this is the person you're dating, but I'm gay. You're dating her. You know what I mean? So uh-huh. like 
that's the sort of that's the studio system that Bill Cosby is sort of at the tail end of that, where Hollywood can really carefully craft something. So it, the whole thing is about creating an image. Uh, we're beyond that now. You know, we're beyond that with like thanks to social media or no thanks to social media, however you want to look at it. We are beyond sort of believing the image. And I think we have to get over the fact that if somebody makes a good thing, you go, you made a good thing. And I like the good thing you made that it does not even if the good thing is about how they're a good person. You made a good thing about how you want me to believe you're a good person. Thank Mm. you for making that thing. But it doesn't necessarily reflect the reality. So for me, I think my naivete is gone. But this documentary was about like, I can't I don't think it's healthy to lose the tr- the history i don't right. think it's healthy to act like the cultural impact didn't happen i don't think you can i don't think i want to throw away all the performances of all the actors who are on who worked with bill cosby but i do want to look at them and go there's also a bigger story being told here i mean and it doesn't have to be as you said people who've done awful things it could we do this with people who've done things we just don't agree with them politically like any mm. uh, you know a lot of you white people are having an air clapton reckoning right now that i'm quite <laughs> enjoying as i sit by the fire you know like it's just about like <laughs> like we were okay like, with the black appropriation but it was the anti-vax stuff that, <laughs> yeah. where we drew the line basically i was like the first time i heard jimi hendrix i was done with eric clapton just me Great. just me Right. Uh, so, yeah, like I think there's like we have these reckonings all the time. Again, it doesn't have to be about th- them doing criminal activities. It's just about this person's not who I believe they were in the song Tears in Heaven. It was really important for us also to make sure that it wasn't about this doc series is not about like one bad guy who did bad things. It's like this is a cultural conversation. This mm-hmm. is like he was enabled for a very long time. He was enabled by not just people, individual people, but a culture that said it's OK to to treat women a certain way or to behave a certain way when you have power. So I think, yeah, it's definitely a continuing conversation. Even if he was still in prison, we wouldn't be like, solved it. Right. Like this problem's right. solved. <laughs> yeah, I think as as you'll see in my comments on Instagram, a lot of people are like, well, why are you focusing on Bill Cosby? What about Jeffrey Epstein and, and Harvey Weinstein? Yeah, them too. Yeah. Right. What did you see the role of comedy as being in this film. In other words, your level of comedy, Kamal, because you're a very funny person. And I noticed little in the in the written sections and voiceover, mm. sort of very subtle jokes, or at least you're you're letting us know that you understand the irony of situations. And yet this is not a subject that should probably be overly joked about. Like how did you navigate that? I mean, you know, it definitely was a situation of like First of all, I've had years of sort of navigating, making jokes about difficult situations on United Shades of America mm-hmm. uh, on CNN, which comes back this spring. But not making jokes, not making fun of things, but making jokes about things, which I, I draw a distinction between the two. It's not always good to make fun of something, but it is always good to make fun out of something, to sort of go, there's mm-hmm. a way to look at this that we can process this with jokes. But yeah, we definitely talked about tone. There was a joke in that I, I kept being like, I think that one's too far. And everyone's like, no, that one's fine. So there are times <laughs> where I would just sort of see to the group. But, you know, for me, it was about the fact that uh, Vinny Malotra, who was the executive at Showtime, who greenlit this and was with us the whole time. And he, he said early on, it's really helped me. He's like, this is your op-ed. This mm. is an op-ed piece that you're writing in docuseries form. And so it led me go, OK, so I can make points that only I think I would make as long as I'm making it clear to the audience that this is my point. Or I can put some spin on the ball, like even if it's not a joke, but just like I, like one of them is like uh, and then Bill Cosby released an album called Bill Cosby Talks to Kids About Drugs. Which I'm not saying a joke. I'm just stretching it out to be like, listen to what I'm saying. Right. You know, so it's like I understood that I was allowed to because I I claim myself as a comedian at the top of this. 
and somebody who's invested in this, I'm allowed to decide where I can, where I can be funny and be, uh, you know, I don't have to be, and I love all these people. I don't have to be Alex Gibney, which I think Alex Gibney is a great documentary filmmaker. I can be Kamau Bell, mm-hmm. who's being inspired by that kind of documentary filmmaking. Uh, we are talking to W. Kamau Bell, the host and director of We Need to Talk About Cosby, and also the executive producer of the project, Katie King, here on Livewire. Uh, something else that is a, a real surprise ending, in a way, in this series is when you're filming, and, and I think most people in the world would have assumed that Bill Cosby was going to be in jail for a very long time, and then there's this stunning ruling that uh, reverses his conviction. And um, Katie, were you are you the one who's like running out of the interview with like going to film with your iPhone? <laughs> yeah. How did you, I mean, was this really that unexpected that even your your production was unaware that he was about to be released? Yeah, 100%. I mean, it was literally the only day we were shooting in Philly that year. Um, very weird coincidence that we were there. We were waiting on a lawyer to come who actually worked on the prosecution that helped put him in prison. Um, so we're waiting on her to come. And then we just started getting texts that Bill Cosby's conviction was overturned. He might get out. And then it became, he is going to get out. And then it was like, Oh, he's out. (laughs) Like this is happening in real time. Like, this is not like two weeks from now. This is like literally like right now. So yeah, we just, I got in the car with a stranger and a camera and (laughs) went to the prison, but then we find out he from like breaking news that he's already left. So then we go to his house and then, yeah, right. As I got there, was when Cosby was walking up with his team and, um, you know, there's a CNN was there and all these like live news crews and then us with our giant like camera that's not meant for live news. <laughs> and so I'm rolling on my iPhone for most of it. And, um, you know, women next to me yelling, like, we love you, Bill, like, don't mess with Bill signs, like just very, a very weird, unexpected turn of events for our day. That's for sure. But yeah, there was no there was no like mutterings or rumblings of him getting out. We had no, no idea whatsoever that that was going to happen. It was not even like an inkling in our minds that Cosby's ever getting out. Never mind getting out a day we happened to be shooting in Philly. What does that do to your op-ed piece, Kamau? <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean that like, you know, not even as a joke because yeah, one sure. thing when a person is in jail for what might be the rest of their natural life. And it's a very a different thing when they're released from jail, particularly as a black man in a system that has victimized black men. Yeah. So, I mean, I think I don't know that I ever would have even thought to work on this project if he had been walking around free at the time. I don't know. There's something about when he went to prison, it felt like the story was over. Mm-hmm. And then it became clear when he got out that the story was not only not over, that people who are defenders of Bill Cosby are going to be out in full bloom. And it's so, it, it, you know, the way I put it, like this conversation was always in like a third rail conversation for just Americans who grew up in Bill Cosby's lifetime. Then it's a, then you add another electrified rail if you're black, another electrified rail if you're a black person in media, and then another electrified rail if you're the director of this series. So it's like <laughs> it just felt like maybe this is over. Maybe it should be over. Maybe I want it to be over. Uh, and, but as as Katie was like running out, as she said, running out of the uh, space we were in to go f- get B-roll, I went back to the hotel and got on a Zoom with every all the producers and editors who were just back home working remotely on the series. And we just had like a like a big meeting, just like a like event session. Like it wasn't even about like, all right, we need this done by Monday. It was just about let's talk through this. Mm-hmm. But you realize, no, the majority of the work still is making the right point. It's just about like how we get in and get out has changed. And and maybe this makes it feel more relevant. I mean, certainly when you think about a four episode series like this, the fourth episode seems like it's already sort of written itself. 
And so, you know, you go, well, we know what we're going to do here. And it definitely meant that we had to throw some things out that we wanted to keep in just because now we had to make room for this surprise ending. Last question. Um, You start this documentary with the question of, like, who is Bill Cosby? And you hear some various uh, different answers and interesting answers to that. I'm, I'm wondering what your answer to that question is now, having made this film. You know, it's funny. This was a, I feel like Katie could weigh in on this because, like, sure, I, the the series ends with me with me sort of giving some final words, just because it feels like that's what you're supposed to do in this situation. But I was like, I feel like Kieran Amayo just said the final words that I would say. Kieran Amayo, who's the ex editor in chief of Every Magazine, says that Bill Cosby, it basically says, is the key or the catalyst to understanding America. And for me, I'm like, that's it, that's a wrap. We got it. Like to me, it's like because his career is both about overcoming racism and about using misogyny, sexism, rape culture to be a predator and hide in plain sight. Like those are two of America's main forces right there, racism and how it treats women and how it treats women of color. So it's like those are the two main operating principles of America, I think. And Bill Cosby's life and career addresses both those things. And if we can really unpack all that and understand it, I think we have we could we could actually really learn something, which is ironically what Bill Cosby told us he wanted us to do. What about for you, Katie, as a woman? Who's Bill Cosby to you? Oh, boy. Um, I mean, honestly, that moment in his driveway looking at him, which I was not expecting to do, you know, I was about 10 feet away from him. And it was just like it's it was very much a metaphor for this whole thing where it's like at first my brain was like, there's Cliff Huxtable. There's like this guy you watched with your family every Thursday who felt like a father to you. And at the same moment, I had met all these women who had told us their stories of sexual assault and rape, you know, in person and built, had relationships with them. So I'm also looking at someone who I believe is a serial rapist 10 feet away from me. And just holding both of those truths in your head is is very complicated. But I think that's the point is that people are complicated and they can be both of those things. Um, so I feel like he's he's both. I think he's both those things to me still. Well, it's a really incredible piece of journalism and uh, filmmaking. Everybody should check it out on Showtime. We need to talk about Cosby, uh, hosted and directed by W. Kamau Bell, executive produced by Katie King. Thanks to both of you for coming on Livewire to talk about it. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Special thanks this episode to Andrew John of Minneapolis, Minnesota. Andrew is part of the Livewire member community and generously supports the show with a donation each month, which is huge because it's how we're able to keep doing Livewire. Thanks to people like Andrew out there in Minnesota. Thank you so much to Andrew for keeping Livewire going. This is Livewire. In a moment, we are going to bring you some fashion advice from our dear friend Paul F. Tompkins, who really knows from fashion. But before we do that, we wanted to hear from the Livewire listeners about their biggest fashion regrets. Elena has been collecting up those responses. What are you seeing? I'm seeing some really questionable choices, Mr. Burbank. Just a a panopticon of bad fashion. (laughs) Wow. Good use of panopticon. (laughs) How about this one from Phil? Phil regrets his Mork from Ork rainbow suspenders. (laughs) Those were very in style in the 80s, right? Yeah. A little before our time, I think, like when we were like in diapers. 
I remember uh, Robin Williams, you know, on on Mork wearing a Mork and Mindy, and then also I feel like Gallagher. Oh yeah, was also kind of into that look. Like those, they seemed kindred yeah. souls when it came to fashion. Those two suspenders are hard to pull off. I've never been able to do it. I don't know. I had a suspenders phase in um, in high school. They got they were very in style for some reason in the like early nineties, mm. and I had the kind that you would actually button onto your pants. Mm. I don't know what I was going. I was going for like Southern lawyer or something. <laughs> I don't know what the look was for 16-year-old Luke Burbank, but I was trying it. Uh, what's another regrettable fashion choice from one of our listeners? Oh, uh, Dave says, as a child of the 80s, we all did bad things with acid-washed denim. Very bad things. <laughs> I love acid-washed denim, though. I would wear I would wear that now. Oh, I believe it's come back, and it's gone in and out of style, like, Three times in the last 10 years. I mean, those things are not going anywhere. Yeah. There are so many fashion trends that I really thought we had left behind, particularly in the 1990s, that are aggressively back oh, yeah. these days. Those like <laughs> mom jeans and chokers mm-hmm. and some of Doc them are cool. Martins and- mm-hmm. The other day I was looking through a catalog and they had named an outfit the associate professor, which is what my rank and title <laughs> is. And I was like, what? And it was like this long drapey cardigan and like a, sh- a, a shirt buttoned up to like your your Adam's apple, <laughs> and like a pair of like thick rimmed glasses. <laughs> so- See, they, they're all wrong if, if they were thinking that that's the Elena Passarell look, because of course you are also a professor in real life. But yeah. I think you, you don't dress anything like that. No, I mean, it's uh, there need to be like eight colors involved and mm-hmm. there need to be representations of at least three members of the animal kingdom. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, one more regrettable fashion choice from a Livewire listener. There's a one word answer from Lynn. Hypercolor. <laughs> I knew you'd like that one. <laughs> I had a hypercolor shirt. I saved up for it. But I had heard that if you washed your hypercolor shirt, you would sort of change or take mm-hmm. away a little bit of its, you know, color changing properties. So I just wore this hypercolor shirt for easily 12 months without washing oh, it. Oh, no. Because I wanted it to be the most hypercolory it could be. And that's why I didn't have friends in middle school. It was probably hyper-aromatic by the time you were done it with was, it. It was smell-o-vision by the time I was done with it. hyper smell All right. Thanks to everyone who wrote in with their responses. We've got another listener question for next week's show, which we will share with you at the end of this episode. All right. Let's bring our next guest on over to the show, or I should say back over, because it's Paul F. Tompkins. And a few weeks ago, we played a full interview with him that we'd recorded at Revolution Hall back in December. And by the way, it was a hilarious conversation. If you didn't hear it, you should go check it out. But during that conversation, we also got into a whole topic on fashion, and we didn't quite have time to fit it in that recent episode. So we wanted to play it here. It is an exercise that we call the Jar of Truth. Again, recorded with the very sartorial Paul F. Tompkins back in December in front of a live crowd at Revolution Hall in Portland. Check it out. I don't know. I don't know if this is public knowledge, but the F in Paul F. Tompkins stands for fashion, right? It's true. Turn w- to the Wikipedia. Left. It was your grandfather, uh, fashion uh, Xavier. O'Kelly? My grandfather was a fascist, and oh. it is a bummer to talk about. They changed it at Ellis Island. He was on the wrong side. Yeah, exactly. It was, it was bad news. Paul, you're a very uh, fashionable person, as is evident to anyone here uh, at Revolution Hall. 
and we we wondered if we could if we could uh, uh, sort of utilize that uh, by asking you some fashion related questions. Please. Many of us are now re-emerging into sort of group settings and we're you know getting kind of dressed up again. Uh, so uh, here on the uh, stage, we have an actual physical jar. It's got five questions related to fashion. We call this the jar of truth. All right, Paul is selecting a question right. about current fashion from the jar of truth. Oh, Elena. about current fashion? Yes. Uh-oh. How do you feel? The question essentially is, how do you feel about these actual fashion trends that our production team has uh, uh, scoured the internet? These are real things that are currently in fashion. We okay. want to get your take on so it. So no questions about top hats? <laughs> no. no, this first one is, how do you feel about monkey tail beards, which are beards that curl around a man's face and under his nose. To a, it's like a monkey sitting on his head, and then his beard no. is the tail. Come on. <laughs> Look, I, my first rule of, of any kind of fashion is do whatever you want. If it feels good to you, if you like the way it looks, then do it. There's no, I don't think there's supposed to be any rules. And people try to impose rules on everything. And I don't think that, I, don't, I just don't buy that. That said, <laughs> you're, just, you're just messing around. You don't think that looks good. You're just being a goof. <laughs> Do it. That's a thing you do once, so everybody can see it. You get a couple pictures, and then you immediately get rid of that. That's not so. Nobody should. No, there should not be a second day where someone is saying, "Still, <laughs> the gag is over." All right, uh, Paul is. Uh, you're a no on that one. Yeah, that's a no for you, dog. That's a no for me. All right, let's draw another question out of the jar of truth. Okay, well then, how do you feel about sleepwear? as day wear, sort of the outside pajamas kind of. I will tell you this. <laughs> <laughs> I had seen pictures of this. There's a few famous people who do this. Uh, the artist and director Julian Schnabel is a uh, pajamas mm. in public guy. Mm -hmm. Nick Nolte was a pajamas in public guy for a while. Huh. And was arrested for it. Yeah. Before that even. Oh, that wasn't yes. the time. Yes. One time... Uh, I woke up. We did not have coffee in the house. I had to go to the supermarket to get coffee. I went in my pajamas, and it felt powerful. <laughs> it was such a good feeling. It was, so, it was so good to just get out of bed into my car and go to the supermarket. Nothing changed. Yeah. It felt great. I fully support it. Then why, uh, Paul, why don't you uh, avail yourself of that level of comfort more often? Because I have to save something for my later years. <laughs> I can't splurge it all at once. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's going to be such a relief when yeah. you get into your golden years and it's just... When, when you get to that point of life where you're like, I literally don't care. Mm -hmm. I can't wait. I, ca I care a little bit too much right now. I'm yeah. not there yet. Not there yet. <laughs> oh, I don't think we could get much better than this one. I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on the sartorial trend of bucket hats. <laughs> I, I kind of like bucket hats. I feel like they come and go every... 15 years, not even like on the tens, but every 15 years, bucket hats come back. 
They always look stupid. <laughs> they look stupid when I was a kid. They look stupid now. They will always look stupid. It's called a bucket hat. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. They None of them really fit. Like, when you put a bucket hat on, yeah. it's like, if it actually fits like the way a hat would, you wouldn't be able to see. Right. So you have to get either too small or too big. If you, uh, They're absurd, and I don't know what purpose they serve. Do you know what I mean? I don't know what we're getting out of them. I guess it's it's just like the most basic. It's like if you made a hat yourself, right? <laughs> if you're like, it's pretty sunny out there. I have zero hats. What do I have lying around that I can cut into a circle? <laughs> I think they're all right. I'm not mad at you, bucket hats. I'm not Aww. mad at you. All right. You're that welcome back anytime. I'll see you in 15 years. <laughs> okay. What about mask turtlenecks? They're masks, but you pull them up from... No. You, who, who are you? Mort from Bazooka Joe? <laughs> Absolutely not. A, a sweater of yours should not ever smell right. like your breath. Right? No. <laughs> All right, last question. Okay, last question. How do you feel about crocheted clothing? <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's like a, is that like a macrame vest. Like I mean, I think first of all, it's thrilling. Of course, you see a little, you get a little peek inside. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, the, the color of your torso matches the color of your face. Interesting. <laughs> I would have gone fifty-fifty on that. Um, I like that uh, it it is keeping some Etsy shops alive for sure. <laughs> It does feel a little like, uh, you know, uh, like an Afghan blanket that's mm -hmm. the kind of knitted or maybe crocheted one where that was, for some reason, one of the major blankets we had in the house. 100%. And, yeah. like, if you weren't feeling well, my mom would be like, well, throw this on. I was like, this is more not blanket than blanket. The <laughs> square, the, the surface area that isn't blanket yeah. is more than the amount that is blanket. If you can see yourself through a blanket, right. it's not helping. No. Right. This no. feels like the clothing version of that to yeah. some degree. Yeah, yeah. That's a poncho. Right. Um... <laughs> I say, you go get it, you crochet creeps. You enjoy yourselves. <laughs> Paul F. Tompkins, everybody. That was Paul F. Tompkins right here on Livewire. Uh, you can check him out as Mr. Peanut Butter on BoJack Horseman, or you can stream his stand-up special, Crying and Driving, right now. Something I do on a weekly basis. <laughs> All right, this is Livewire. <laughs> Wish that was a joke. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. we got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere because we will be right back with some music from Keb Moe. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. And they make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. 
Let's talk to our musical guest. He's got five Grammys, an Americana Music Association 2021 Lifetime Achievement winner. He's also had a groundbreaking career spanning nearly 50 years. At this point, Keb Moe does not have a lot to prove. So for his latest album, he went back to his roots and literally bought his childhood home, Compton, California, moved in and wrote a lot of his new record, which is called Good To Be. And he's here to tell us all about it. Keb Moe, welcome to Livewire. Oh, glad to be here. Uh, we're fans of yours. We're so excited we finally got you on the show. It only took a <laughs> pandemic. but um, Let's hope it doesn't take that much next time. <laughs> yeah, right? Um, you're in Nashville right now, if I understand, but I know your childhood home of Compton, California, plays a really huge role in this new album. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, yeah. it's uh, Some of the writing was done in Compton, you know, and uh, also this concept of having a stake in my hometown and and the roots and being in Nashville being away from LA is something I really need because it's that that I need to tether myself mm. to that so that while I'm out here in Nashville floating around and being all Nashville I know that I can go and sit and <laughs> down on my old block and you know and just <laughs> hang out in the backyard <laughs> Compton is a is a really cool neighborhood. I used to live in L.A., and I used to go down there from time to time. What do you think the misconceptions are around Compton? Well, the misconceptions is that all every people ever hear about is, you know, violence and mm-hmm. gangs and the negative things about it. But like any community, you know, there's people living there and raising their kids. And, you know, but I, I grew up in a different Compton. When I speak of the Comptons, there is a, a north, south, east, and west kind of like factor but then there's the Compton's generational Compton. Mm. The Compton I grew up in was pretty, pretty normal. Mm. <laughs> it wasn't very exciting at all. <laughs> what was the music like for you as a kid growing up in Compton? What were your What were your influences? Um, the radio. We had a stereo, but we couldn't afford many albums. And I listened to the radio a lot. And I listened to one album, a couple of albums called one from Mango Santa Maria. And then there was an album from the Quartet Trebian, a jazz quartet that had a conga player, and I liked them like that. And then there was uh, Johnny Mathis's Greatest Hits. <laughs> Some pretty good influences. Yeah. What drove you towards, I mean, early in your career, you were really associated with playing blues music. I mean, your your repertoire and catalog has really expanded as evidenced by this latest album. But what drew you towards the blues in the sort of earlier parts of your career? Desperation. It's called the blues, you know. <laughs> it was like I had been um, playing music as a sideman since probably seventy two, you know, and up till now the nineties, you know. So in my twenties, I was playing. I wasn't trying to be a nothing mm-hmm. but just a guy who could play in a band. And then uh, come the mid eighties, early eighties, um, eighty four after my our infamous Kevin Moore album on on Chocolate City Records. Right, you, you know, put out you put out an album under your your legal name first and, yes. and so there is a Kevin Moore album out mm. there. It hasn't always been Keb Moe the whole time. Right. So at that point I found myself, you know, uh, with nowhere to go and nothing to do and <laughs> no one calling me. So I got this call from a blues band called the Who Done It Band. And I and I beca- actually it was they didn't call me they called somebody else and that person called me and asked me this to sub for them for a couple of weeks till they got back from out of town, and then the person went out of town and never came back. And Keb Moe's blues career was born basically. My blues career was born right there. Wow. And then I just got into it because you know 
I had already really made a record deal. I was in my early 30s now, so I figured I was over with because I'm a child of the 60s right. and, and no one trusted anyone over 30. Hmm. So now I was over 30 and like, I couldn't be trusted. So I figured I was done for. So I rode it on out to my uh, late 30s, studying the blues and getting into that. And then at some point, I was ready to just kind of throw in the towel and just, but then I decided, you know what? I've been stupid this far. I'm just going to keep being stupid and stay in. That's great. That should be the name of your memoir. <laughs> just stay, I just stay right now. I'm staying in. Well, you know, and this what, is fun. Five, five Grammys later? Yeah, I'm still stupid. I'm still just, I just still stay in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like you have to have a little screw loose to go on your own way outside of the, uh, the system of getting a job and moving up the corporate ladder and whatever. Uh, I'm I'm curious, you know, um, what is it like doing this at age 70 versus doing it at age 25 or 30 for you? <laughs> My fingers move slower. <laughs> I don't know. I, I feel like 20. You know, I've taken pretty good care of myself. Yeah. You know, I don't drink. I don't smoke anything crazy. <laughs> pretty much, you know, I'm pretty strict about taking care of myself because all those years of being on my own and not having a uh, health plan, <laughs> taking care of myself was my health plan. So I just, you know, I ended up at 70 and I don't have any wow. aches and pains and, you know. Uh, yeah, it's just not, don't grow up. It's kind of like that. It's, it's an illusion. It's not really not like I don't look 70. I just never grew up. <laughs> this song that we're going to hear, uh, Good To Be, uh, what can you tell us about it? Uh, it's a uh, kind of a, a chronological story about my return home to Compton. You know, and being in the neighborhood, I'm just in the groove. You know, I talk about all the things that are, that are there, things that aren't there, and how it is now, and just and and it's, the underlying theme is basically gratefulness. It's good to be anywhere. It's good to be here. Let's take a listen to this. It's Keb Mo on Livewire.
so much thank you right here on livewire kevmo's new album good to be is available now thanks so much for coming on the show thank you glad to be here okay before we get out of here a little preview of next week's episode we're gonna be talking to pulitzer prize finalist and new york times best-selling writer karen russell about her short story collection orange world then comedian marcella arguello makes the case for staying single over 30 and we're going to catch up with legendary indie musician and activist Ani DeFranco. And as always, we are going to be looking to get your answer to our listener question. Elena, what are we asking the listeners for next week's show? Tell us about something that you could pay for, but would rather just do yourself. Aha. Uh-huh. It's because Ani DeFranco has had this record label, Righteous Babe Records, for pretty much her whole career. It's just been DIYing it in this really impressive uh, way. So we wanted to find out versions of that that our listeners are engaging in. If you've got an answer to our question, you can submit that on Twitter or Facebook. We're at Livewire Radio out there on the social media. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of Livewire. A huge thanks to our guests, W. Kamau Bell, Katie King, Paul F. Tompkins, and Keb Moe. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Bichelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Our assistant editor is Trey Hester. And Stephanie Moore is our social media manager. Our house band is Ethan Fox Tucker, Ayal Alves, Zach Domer, and A. Walker Spring, who also composes our music. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer. And our house sound is by D. Neil Blake. Additional funding provided by the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank member Andrew John of Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire team. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time, because we love having this job. 
Uh, Thank you so much. If you've left a review and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.